on this episode of The Jason Wright Show. But so all of these people got me here, yet somehow I was thinking I have to get myself out of the bad situation. Why do we have this discrepancy in thinking about our good experiences versus our bad experiences? Sabina, I have pushed record. I am so excited you're here. Thank you so much for being here on the Jason Wright Show today. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Jason. Excited to, to speak to your audience. Well, I got to tell you, it was really hard So I was for the audience out there. So Sabina comes on, and she gives me the most amazing, like, setting me up, framing this conversation of essentially, what are we going to talk about? What are we going to cover? I mean, I'm talking to one of the premier executive coaches in the world, and I'm like, oh, that was so awesome. And and, it, and it, I'm glad you did it because it's kind of hard because you hit on so many topics. And, and by the way, Sabina, what's really cool about your writing and your TED Talks that I've watched ad nauseum a lot of the work you do, it's it's kind of like a takey. It's Brene Brown meets Jim Collins, and you, and you tie it into this like mindful, you know, Carol Dweck. Like I want to jump into uh, growth mindsets. You kind of combine it all in such a clear and concise way to take these topics that, whereas might just kind of, if not for someone like you, live only outside. Uh, the business world and like personal life and helping you get better, you have found a way to, in, in my opinion, bring this stuff into the workplace for a better mindset. Like talking about things like a scarcity mindset and fear-based decision making, all these things that you have helped uh, you know leaders overcome. I think that is so cool. And so the more I learned about you, the more I read your work, I was like, I have got to invite her on. So I'm so glad you're here. Thank you. Uh, I can just listen to you saying wonderful things about me for the rest of this talk. And, uh... <laughs> you know, well, I probably could. That's the thing. But that might get kind of lame to the audience. So let's go ahead and hear from the, the <laughs> guest of honor herself. So, all right. Well, so first and foremost, I think where I would like to start this, Sabina, because it wasn't, the, the cool thing is, when I first kind of identified a growth mindset kind of understanding or framework, in what you were talking about. It had, you weren't like talking, you weren't referencing Carol Dweck and her book and and any of that work that's been done. I mean, I've taught on it, okay? That's not what you were doing. Instead, you were talking, you were giving a story about your early years at Microsoft, which was part of a much larger conversation, deeper conversation that was fantastic, by the way, and very influential on me. But you were talking about this idea of a, a... what should have been a fun day went really bad, but the most important thing was going back to work after that. So I thought, let's start there, kind of you tell the story and then take it from there as to how your mental, how your state of mind got you to come back to work and then you just tell the story. <laughs> I will. It was uh, Halloween, October 31st of 1991. I'd been at my job at Microsoft for a year. And this was a hard-earned job because uh, as uh, somebody who had come over as a junior transfer student into undergrad school and then went through a master's program, uh, 
<clears throat> coming to this country with $750 in two suitcases. And then as I was finishing up my master's work, sending out 180 job applications and then getting this job. So it was a big deal. In those days, nobody really knew the name Microsoft. I had to look it up and read about William H. Gates III. <laughs> and and uh, when they asked me to come over to Seattle for an interview, I wasn't sure I wanted to move to the West Coast, but I thought it's a free trip to Seattle. And by my third interview, I was in love with the place. And I loved the, the spark, the passion, the energy, the smarts of the people who were there. Yet a year into my job, I found myself in a very different place. It was Halloween. I dressed up as a punk <laughs> with spray paint, pink spray paint on my hair and silver and black and all this stuff. Not like how I normally dress, even though I've got on black and silver right now. <laughs> and my boss called me into his office and he said, um, we're going to cancel the meeting that's, that was set up to talk about your work because your work does not meet the bar. Mm. And, and all that black makeup started streaking down my face. Think kiss. And the look on mm -hmm. his, <laughs> the, and I just went home and I curled up into a ball. So when you say, what was the mindset, what got you back there? It wasn't me. Mm -hmm. And that would be step number one, is that sometimes we are our own worst critics. We are our own worst enemies. And it's really hard for us single-handedly to get out of certain situations that we put ourselves in. I, I had not liked my job for a long time, but I hadn't realized that it had seeped out. And I still needed the job because I needed the job to, to, to because to even stay in the country, I had to have a job to not disappoint my family that, oh gosh, we sent our daughter across a couple of oceans. Uh, what is she doing over there? All of these reasons. But so all of these people got me here, yet somehow I was thinking, I have to get myself out of the bad situation. Why do we have this discrepancy in thinking about our good experiences versus our bad experiences? And the way I got out of it was my husband, Matthew, actually sitting me down, looking me in the eyes, getting me out of bed and going, you can do this. Go get him, champ. Mm. And that's, that's that, that statement of you can do this. I didn't believe it, but I, I trusted him. Yeah. And that trust, that, that surrender to someone else when you are at your lowest points and listen to them, trust them, even if you don't believe them yet, rent the idea, you don't have to fully buy it yet, and go in. And you know what? It was wonderful because my boss actually, despite giving me that tough feedback, really wanted me to succeed. Wow. And um, we brainstormed many other options. So I like to say that failure is your opportunity to expand your definition of success. I like that. That I had one view of success, and that was doing this job this way, which wasn't going to work for me. So finding that there are many other ways to succeed, which I did, wildly beyond my dreams. Well, I, I want to I want to ask you a question right there because that, that reminds me of something, and this is because I have fallen into this trap, and I guarantee there's people listening to this that have fallen into this trap. And, I, and what I heard you say there. And, and also, by the way, you know, just so the listener knows, that you, you eloquently tell this story in one of your TED Talks. And when I heard you talk about you not wanting to disappoint your family, you knew the opportunity that you had. 
you did you you needed the job. All of a sudden, why is it, Sabina, and how do we overcome? And you started to touch on it before the host so rudely interrupted you. Was that this scarcity mindset comes in? Why do we start to act like one? Not only is this the only job I'll ever have, but that the job it is hanging by such a fine thread. Why do we do that and how do we overcome those thoughts? Yeah. yeah. Well, that particular job was hanging by a fine thread. Mm. I think if I had continued in that one, it would have taken me way too long to succeed at it and I would likely have gotten fired. Mm. Now, what's very interesting, Jason, as I meet and talk to people across the globe and sit on panels, I discover that a large percentage of us have faced either being fired or nearly being fired from our first jobs. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And what does that mean? It means that we're just exploring. We're green. We don't know yet. We don't know what we don't know. We don't know what's good for us. Certainly, we're not playing to our strengths always. Right. And that scarcity mindset takes away, robs us of our strengths and beats us over the head about what we're not good at. And the way I was able to succeed and turn around with Matthew's help, with my boss's help, was by leaning into my strengths and not beating myself up over my in, in insufficiencies and deficiencies. So that's, that's a big part of this, is really understanding there is enough. It's like if this is hanging by a thread, but here's a concrete pillar, and that's called your strengths. That's called your inner core. So listen to that. Tune into what you do well. What, you, what are you attracted to? What lights you up? What energizes you? And follow that. Why are we so obsessed with the the faults? I mean, there and we do that. It's like, and I, and I am so guilty of this. I will spend so much time trying to improve upon something that I'm mediocre doing, than I will taking and becoming excellent and you know almost a virtuoso. It's something that I have either a natural ability or just by repetition I've developed a talent for that. Why do we do that, Sabina? I don't know. I think we are wired to the negative. Maybe it's a it's a primitive desire to survive, like look for the threat, look for the danger. Yep. Mm-hmm. The problem is our brain cannot actually distinguish anymore the difference between a real threat of a lion hiding in the tall grasses yep. and a perceived threat. And so we have we bring out the same scarcity behaviors, the same sort of flight, fright, disaster, catastrophizing that we would in real danger. Um, There's uh, various research studies, everything from that we pay more attention to the negative than the positive, and that for us to perceive equal amounts of negative to positive, we actually have to receive five positives to every one negative. For example, uh, that shows up in couples research uh, by John Gottman. Mm -hmm. And so... Uh, Another thing to think about as we're building this is to really uh, buttress ourselves, cushion ourselves with the positives and start every day with that uh, positivity. There is a great work. I'll say two more things on this. There's great work by um, Donald Clifton, Marcus Buckingham, the Gallup organization on strengths finders. And the basic premise being that you work on your weaknesses, you become mediocre at best. You work on your strengths, you become world-class. Now, I don't want to uh, minimize weaknesses that are 
so below the bar that you're going to be shown the door. Obviously, you need to be at a certain level, at a certain bar. And beyond that, though, it's really your strengths that are going to move the needle. So how do you become hyper-focused on your strengths? I cannot tell you the number of people who, when they receive a 360-degree feedback um, instrument report, where they've gotten feedback from all around them, hence the name 360, and they go, and, and I say, what did, you, what did you find out? What stood out for you? And they immediately home in on their weaknesses, of course. And I go, well, what about your strengths? And they're like, yeah, 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 that was very flattering. Great. Now let's, let's get to the real work. <laughs> yep. I say, no, actually, the real work is on your strengths. So your weakness is that you're not focusing on your strengths enough. And we're going to work on that weakness as opposed to some of the others uh, first. So that's, that's something to think about. One more thing I'm going to share here, because uh, we happen to be talking in the month of U.S. uh, Thanksgiving, and uh, my colleague Whitney Johnson, I was reading her newsletter where she said, in this month of November this year, she is going to write a thank you note to somebody every single day, and her invitation was, would you join me? And I had this aha. My aha was, what if I write a thank you note every day to myself? Oh, wow. I like that. Now, this is going to sound weird, and I have a a lot of judgment. My scarcity mindset, my fear-based mindset goes, ooh, that's like uh, uh, self-absorbed or uh, too needy or whatever. And at the same time, I said, okay, Sabina, that's one voice. But here, just do it. So this is what I have been doing every single morning is I've been writing by hand, Thank you notes to myself. I don't know what I'm going to thank about myself. I just sit down in front of a blank blank piece of paper and do not get up until I finished writing. It has been incredibly helpful to really unexpectedly discover the abundance of gifts and privileges that I have in my life. Wow. That's a great idea. And you know, it, it kind of follows... Michael Gervais, who, uh, by the way, Michael Gervais, who uh, uh, was talking about one of your uh, articles, the Harvard Business Review article that you wrote on one of his, it was on, it was on his um, Ask Me Anything podcast or something like that, uh, one of his episodes. And he came up with a, a similar type deal. And I want to talk about this more in depth about kind of essentially separating yourself because you mentioned it before we got on. We often will give ourselves or just basically speak to ourselves in ways we would never speak to another human being, right? Yep. And exactly. One of, and one of his tools and tactics that he's come up with that I thought was really great, very similar to your thank you notes, is he said, okay, self-talk is so important. And I definitely want to, you know, talk further beyond how you went from Matthew and then developing your own self-talk so that when Matthew's not there to tell you, hey, you, got, you know, you, sometimes yeah. you got to have that own internal yeah. dialogue. He said, okay, so you tell yourself, you know, I'm a badass. But he said, then write the proof, write the evidence that you, you oh, so, isn't that cool? It's like, it's like, okay, I, you know, not just the Stuart Smalley, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me, but instead, I'm an overcomer. Well, okay, that's good, but why? And look back in your life, so, well, I overcame cancer, or I, I exited an, an abusive relationship, whatever the case may be. 
don't just make the statement, but also offer up the ver- uh, offer up the the evidence of why you are worthy of giving yourself that positive mm-hmm. affirmation. And I like what you've come up with because, you know, there are things. And I am the I am personally the type of person that I would never thank myself for any of the decisions I've made. Instead, I will just hang myself out to try just beat myself for the bad decisions. You know, the 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 <laughs> no thank you, Jason, for doing that. Right. So as it relates to doing the thank you notes, which I got to think has to help your internal dialogue just to soften it a bit, what are some of the other tools and tactics that you started to implement to get you through to where you could stop that negative voice and replace it with a more affirming voice with, by the way, a lot of good that you good decisions you've made to draw upon in your present life? How did you start to hone that muscle? Yeah, so it's really about uh, starting small. Mm. Now, uh, you and I are both entrepreneurs and, you know, we like to go big or go home. (laughs) We want to, we we like risk, we like variety, we like change, we like all this, all this stuff. Uh, And the best way to overachieve is to start by underachieving. Mm. And what I mean by that is this idea of micro habits. That is, when I want to make a change, I uh, start with something that is so ridiculously small that it's impossible for me to wiggle out of it. Yeah. And the only rule is I have to do it every day. So it has to be so small that I can do it every day. Okay. Now, many of my clients, for example, they'll go, oh, my gosh, you know, uh, my physical health is in the toilet. My relationships are, are going out the window. I don't have anything to ground me on a daily basis. I'm in a crisis everywhere I look. And I say, all right, so that's overwhelming. And what are you going to do? Well, I'm going to go to the gym for 30 minutes every day from here on out. And I said, and how many times have you promised yourself that? Well, you know, several times, right? And how has that worked out for you? Why do you think this is going to be different? Oh, it's going to be different this time. No, it's not. That's the definition of insanity. Yeah. So... Let's start really, really small, so ridiculously small uh, that you'll go, ah, Sabina, that's just absurd. So I have actually several clients right now who are doing one push-up a day or a 15-second plank or one jumping jack, that small. Yeah. And I know that from my own example, for years, for 20 years to be precise, I wanted to be a runner. I wanted to run. And I didn't succeed because my goal was always 30 minutes at the gym. Mm -hmm. And it was not realistic. It was too much, too much fighting gravity to do that. And so after 20 years, I stumbled upon this idea of doing it as a micro habit. And I built this micro habit over a period of two years. So 20 years, two years. And ran my first 10K at the age of 51. Wow. Congratulations. Thank you. By starting the first day, 0.1 mile run, basically at a walking pace at a 15-minute mile. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. And I stopped. And then the next day, it was still 0.1. And the next day, it was still 0.1. And then it was a 14 and a half minute mile and so on till I built up to the, I'm still not a fast runner, but now I'm hoping to do a half marathon next May. Wow. Uh, So it's really starting in small, small increments. And one other thing I would add is we are all programmed 
for shoulds. Mm. What should you do as a good girl? What should you do as a good daughter? What should you do, in my case, as a, an immigrant into the United States or a brown woman? Uh, what should you do as a good partner, uh, mother, whatever it might be, employee? There are all these shoulds that get layered onto us, these expectations. And as long as we meet those shoulds, we get entry into those clubs. Yeah. Yet what we do with those shoulds, if those shoulds are not in line with what we want, they deplete us from the inside. So I actually have my clients just take a piece of paper, simply write two columns. What are all my shoulds and what are all my wants? Where am I out of alignment? And then in a micro habit way, how might I take a small step from the should to the want and cross that divide? That is genius. And, you know, that's one of the things that I struggled with and I still do to a certain degree, Sabina, but we fall into these traps where, just like you said, there's all these familial, societal expectations. A lot of the expectations come because we've supported them. Like for me, for the longest, it was Jason's good at business, and so I wanted to live up to being good at business and doing all these things that you – know, I was also a good football player, but I hated football. I couldn't stand it. My dad loved it. I was good at it. So, therefore, I just fell into the trap. Well, I'm supposed to play football. I hated it. And then it's a, then it just carries over into work, and it's only now. It's one of the reasons why this podcast exists, and I write now, and I do these things that are truly fun and enriching. Now I can pull from those things that I didn't like so much I've done in the past to do something I really enjoy, and I think that's one of the things that a lot of people struggle with. Because you just mentioned some things that you know that your shoulds that are like, hey, I have a responsibility. I think that's a lot of things that people they look at a should, and correct me if I'm wrong here you got this should because I've got the talent, I've got the gift and how dare I waste it or I've got the responsibility. So therefore that can be overwhelming. And, you know, another thing I want to, what you were, when you were talking about the tiniest habit. So my oldest daughter just graduated from the university of Alabama. And so we're Alabama fans. I'm an Alabama fan. And Nick Saban, who is so famous for the process, right? It's about the process. And don't ever ask Nick Saban in a press conference about the national championship week one, week two, week three. Don't ask him because he's worried about the first second, seven seconds off the football. And after they, I guess it was after they lost to LSU here recently, he made such a great point. He said, right now what I'm trying to get these guys to understand is that they have to overcome the pressure of what's expected of them because every, I mean, think about that. He said they were. Pl- he said I have to make sure they're playing with joy and having fun and not playing just with relief for not losing because they're at Alabama. Everyone expects. He said so. It's just take care of the task at hand, the smallest thing. Make sure you're positioned properly, and if you can do that, then the other things will compound. And it sounds like that's what you what you figured out. It's like. Yeah, and I do the same thing with, like, people that ask me about health and wellness. It's like, don't try to tell yourself you're going to do, you're going to lose 20 pounds by the end of the year. No, instead say, I'm going to go for a walk. And then, hopefully, the next day, I'll go for another walk. And then, right, and let it compound. And that walk is not a 20-minute walk. 
It's not even a 10-minute walk or a five-minute walk. It's a walk from your front door to your mailbox and back. Exactly, exactly. It's uh, and have you read any of BJ Fogg's work out in uh, out in Stanford? Okay. Yes. So I love BJ's work on you know tiny habits and then the way of kaizen and when you to your point when you start to tell people that if you'll just do the smallest thing do and because we like victories right and we like if if you can just do that one if you can take that first step then it it's more it's even more fun when you do it again and again right yes Yes. this is a great piece of advice i read about the habits of some of the best writers of our time or even before our time And one of the tips was that uh, for these writers, they always stopped writing, not when they were out of ideas, but when they were on the peak of an idea. Yeah. Because then the next day, they're starting with their cup full. They're like, I cannot wait to get back to this. I was so excited where we left. I left myself on a cliffhanger and I've got to get get back. Versus, oh gosh, I ran out of ideas yesterday. What am I going to write about today? I suck. Yeah. Yeah. That. So, so it's, it's really looking for the peak and extending that and stopping there, not depleting yourself, filling your bucket with that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, you know, I just had a conversation with a girl that I'm mentoring who wants to write a book and, and I fell victim to this, not victim to it. I mean, it was self-inflicted, but I wanted to write a book. So I went out and wrote a book before I'd ever written anything long time ago. And she came to me, she said, I want to write a book. I said, okay, do you have a blog? Well, no, I don't have a blog. I said, why don't you start there? Before you write a book, and I said, and by the way, whenever you start to write your blog, don't worry about writing a, an entire blog entry. Just write the first sentence. You know, exactly. Right? right? Exactly. It, and our, bra- our yeah. brains and everything are so wired to think of, and, and it's scary. That's, and that's what I want to get into next is fear. Because I think that fear is one of those things. I want your take on this. For that example, I want to write a book. Well, if I'm thinking about writing 250 pages, 20 chapters, that's scary. That scares the crap out of me. But writing a sentence, I can, I can pull that off. And, and talk a little bit about, as it relates to mindsets, self-talk, the growth mindset, forming those habits, what about, where does fear come into play and being able to slay those internal dragons? How have you been able to do that? Well, fear is a part of the permanent human condition. And fear, I think, is a very helpful emotion. It's, it's, um, it keeps us uh, alive. It keeps us aware. It keeps us awake. Those are all good things. And we have to make sure it doesn't debilitate us. Mm. Uh, I just finished reading an interest, listening to an interesting novel called Four Winds by Kristen Hanna. And one of the characters there says, there's no such thing as courage. Courage is just ignoring your fear. Hmm. Hmm. And so we want to pay attention to our fear enough to make sure there isn't real danger. Yeah. Or you know, how big is the danger? Again, back to taking small experiments to combat that fear versus taking it all head on. So if somebody's never spoken up for themselves, your first foray into that is not with your largest client. Your first foray into that might be actually uh, talking to the barista who gave you the wrong order for a, a coffee that you spent $6 on mm. and not just walking away saying, oh, it's good, thanks. You're going to dump it in the trash can. Right. So I think it's, it's about tackling it in small uh, increments. 
The, the other thing with fear is we often personalize a lot of stuff. Oh, they're going to think badly about me. They're, uh, I'm, I'm going to be seen as. And with all due affection, I like to tell people you are not special. <laughs> this has nothing to do with you. Right. It's only in your head that it has something to do with you. And the reason that happens is we get stuck in a single story. If I do this, here's what's going to happen to me, or here's what people are going to think about me. Me, me, me. Yep. Because, it, and it makes sense. There's a lot of wisdom there. Again, back to fear can help us stay alive. And that, on the other hand, am I personalizing it a little too much? So what other stories can I make up about what might have been happening when that customer didn't look me in the eye and say, smile and say, good morning. Maybe, they got bad news that morning. Maybe they got fired th that morning. Maybe something else. This, there's 15 different stories we can make up. And once we do that, we are likely to be less afraid that it has something that to A, do with me or impact me in those really horrible ways that we might have catastrophized. You know, I think that is very good advice because one of the things that I have learned is that if I start to create the narrative as opposed to just reacting to my automatic narrative, just the way you said, like if I go to the mailbox today and there is a letter that is from the internal revenue service, <laughs> immediately it's like, Oh, there is a saber tooth tiger behind that, that tree. I'm the, the amygdala. It's like, Hey, be scared, run what's going on. But what I, and this is, and I use that as an example because as you know, as a small business owner, it, we get letters all the time. I mean, I know you're in Canada, but our IRS is, you know, they, they send letters for the least little thing. And by the way, they're usually not bad ones. And I finally have now kind of like if you were to take your thank you notes, if you're down on yourself, but you've taken the time to write yourself a thank you note, which was probably based on some decision or action that you took that was positive, you immediately now have a counterattack to that negative thought that jumps in whenever oh, something goes wrong in your day. What I've started to do is when my my natural, and I'm kind of, uh, I hate to say this, I hate to admit this on my podcast, but I tend to kind of be a negative person. I am, you know, because I think I'm being cautious if I'm like, oh, worst case scenario, and, and I'll hope for the best. But now if I see that letter from the IRS, I'll go, you know what? It's probably nothing. It's probably not, a, not anything to worry about at all. And, and by the way, and here's the other thing, Sabina, that has really helped me, that took me a long time to develop is not only will I say it's probably not something bad, but if it is, I can overcome it. Whatever it is, there's, there's a, the likelihood of this being a letter but that could destroy my life is so slim. And I think that's one of the things that's been frustrating throughout my life is that you've, you've mentioned it a couple of times in this conversation. When we start to look at everything as a catastrophe in the, in the making or in the way, and I've done that, now I'm like, you know, there just hasn't been that many catastrophes. There have been a few. But by the way, I'm still here. I'm, I'm talking to Sabina on my podcast today. I mean, I lived. I survived. <laughs> Why wouldn't I this time? Isn't that crazy? Right. It is crazy. And, and so really, um, back to something you said, Jason, which is collecting the evidence of how I've been here before. I'm going to be here again. And I'm going to be okay in the grand scheme of things. Yeah. Another piece of this, I think, is is really allowing yourself to feel whatever you're feeling first. Mm. If you name it, you can claim it. 
So if you simply say, I'm feeling afraid right now, and on a scale of one to 10, this is at a nine, or this is at a two. Even, as soon as I say two, I'm like, oh, okay, then it's not that bad, is it? If it's a nine, yes, I need to pay attention. So let me sit with that fear and understand it better. We, as human beings, I think, have a very hard time sust- sustaining our emotions and just yeah. staying in whatever emotion it is. So there's there's this sort of um, pervading thought that the goal of life is to be happy. <laughs> and maybe the goal of life is to just feel what you're feeling yeah. and honor that feeling and see what comes out of it. Um, if you just look at your sort of four basic feelings, like the primary colors of feelings, mad, sad, glad, and afraid. Mm-hmm. Brene Brown says that joy, being glad, is one of the hardest emotions to sustain. And she calls it foreboding joy. Mm. You know, when you have that movie scene and they're driving and they're looking sideways and you're like, ah, right, they're about to get into an accident. Right. It's not just a happy family scene. Right. Of course, Hollywood sets us up for that as well. But right. we have that, you know, I live in the Pacific Northwest and anytime there's a sunny day, somebody goes, oh yeah, it's a great day. Oh, but tomorrow it might rain. Right. Like, why, do we have to, why do we have to rain on the sunny day? Yeah. But we do, we have this foreboding joy. Same with uh, fear. We tend to reassure fear. Mm. Oh, it'll be fine. And you know what? Sometimes it will not be fine. And it's better to recognize that and accept that versus be in denial of that. We tend to marginalize anger uh, and, and, um, and not get at what is it that caused that anger? What's underneath that emotion? that's being masked by this this display of anger. Mm. And we tend to timeline sadness. Uh, Like many, like almost everybody, I've gone through some sad times in my life, including the death of loved ones. And and it's almost like I was on a time clock. Oh, it's been 12 months. You should be fine now, right? Yeah. Uh, Do we still have to talk about your dead brother? Yeah, Uh, yeah, actually, that's where I am right now. Um, So, so we don't, we're not comfortable actually staying in our feelings. And if we did, the only way out of it is through it. Yeah, yeah. You know, all right, let me ask you this. Being an executive coach, like I said, I told you I do some executive coaching, but not to the extent you do. I want to be like you when I grow up, so I need some, I need some advice on this. A lot of the things that you're talking about, and, the, and, the, and I fully agree with. I mean, we, we are totally on the same page. That's why I was so excited to have you on the show. All these things come down to a lot of stopping to try to program and understand our mind, our feelings, our emotions, our cognitive, our cognitive behavior. You go into a Fortune 50 CEO and you ask her, hey, what are you doing to take care of, to capture your thoughts, to take your thoughts captive, to make sure you're acting properly? And all of a sudden they say, Sabina, that's, I'm not into the woo-woo stuff, just... I want you to do what Maggie Siff does for Bobby Axelrod on Billions. Just pump me up so I can go out there and I can charge the hill. How do you get through to these these individuals playing at such a high level when you start to tell them things like, you know, maybe you should try writing yourself a thank you note to realize you have done some good things for yourself. You know, how, how do you, what is the message to them? Because what you're talking about are, are things that, and I'll admit it took me four, over 40 years before I finally started realizing the importance of optimizing my emotions, my mind, 
all it all comes in, you know, like Zeno said, he who conquers his mind conquers the world. It took me so long to figure that out. So how yeah. do you get to those those high powered executives and uh, to to understand the value of this mental optimization? It's easy. It's easy. Awesome. Mm. <laughs> I, 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 I need I need easy, Sabina. <laughs> the first thing is is not thinking of them as high powered executives, but thinking of them as fellow human beings. Nice. And connecting with them. And I didn't even realize I was doing this until I was um, uh, in um, in uh, Portugal running an event and uh, for a CEO and. We had said, oh, we've got, you want a lot covered, so we're going to start exactly at 9 o'clock and, and so on. And time was a little bit elastic over there in that region. Um, and so at about 10 to 9, I went, where is the CEO? The head of HR said, oh, he's having a coffee and a cigarette over there. And I said, okay, I'll go get him. And, uh, and the head of HR said, oh, you're the only one who could do that. And I thought, what? What are you talking about? It didn't even occur to me. I just thought, well, we agreed, 9 o'clock. It's 10 to 9. I better go get the guy, right? So it occurred to me that a lot of people do not speak truth to power mm. because um, it's scary. Yeah. It, it's, um, but it wasn't for me. So speaking of fear, that's not one of my fears. Yeah. And so first of all, I speak to people as human beings. And it's, it's refreshing for them because most people don't treat them as human beings anymore. They treat them either as superheroes or supervillains. Mm. So uh, the other day I was coaching somebody who's the president of a university and I said, uh, well, they, they said something and I said, well, that doesn't make any logical sense to me. And this person burst out laughing and I went, what? Why are you laughing? And they said, I don't remember the last time somebody's called me illogical. Wow. Uh, so I think setting aside people's title, people's not putting them on a pedestal and just dealing with them as a human being, they're much more willing to listen to uh, what you're saying. Then it's about asking, how's it working for you? Yeah. yeah, I can pump you up and I can do rah-rah and go-go with the best of them. You've got a thousand people in your organization doing that for you. Mm. And yet you're coming to me. So me doing exactly what others are doing for you, you don't need me. You're paying me too much money to do that. Yeah, yeah. So I'm going to do something different. And how open are you to different? Oh, bring it on. Let's do something different. Now, everything I say is grounded in a million different examples, lots of research, lots of data, scientific evidence. That doesn't hurt. Yeah, but it's first about building your own connection with the person to say, I get you, I see you, you're not special. Right. Uh, and I can help you in a way that's different from how other people are working with you. I think that is genius. And I think it's also something that is that I've tried to <clears throat> get better at in general, just with dealing with people is wanting to spare their feelings and also not wanting to damage the relationship. Even, even if I thought that, I'm going to walk away a little frustrated because I didn't quite get my message to them clearly. Not, not because I need to be heard and my opinion is so valuable, but just because I, I think I sold the person short. I mean, I've had coaching engagements of that nature where I leave there and I go, 
And I'll tell you, I'll, I'll, I'll fully admit it, Sabina, that the reason why I didn't give the full message is because I didn't want to lose the engagement. I was like, and then I, I was talking to another uh, uh, friend of mine I'm in a master mind group with who's an executive coach, great guy. And I talked to him about this, said, you know, sometimes I feel like I'm a high paid friend and that doesn't feel good. I don't want to be that person that just they yeah. they pay the money. So it sounds to me like what you're saying is when you know what you know and you know why you're there and what they've paid you for, then again, you don't go to, you go from scarcity to abundance. You go, I don't have to just walk on eggshells yeah. and and stifle my message and stifle my value yeah. out of fear I might lose the engagement. Because at worst case scenario, if they say, well, I don't want to hear this, you go, well, at least I'm walking out the door knowing yes. I did my best, right? And nine times out of 10, I get the engagement because of that. Wow. And one time out of 10 or one time out of 100 when the person is not ready to hear that or I'm not the right person or my message is not right, I'm not right all the time, whatever the reason might be, then that's not meant to be. And back to working to your strengths, where am I going to do my best work? Where someone is open to having the real conversation versus walking around eggshells. So in my limited time of however much time I have left on this earth, I want to spend that at the peak of my performance, giving you the value for every cent you're spending on me. And that is by being able to be fully open and transparent with you in service of you. And that's the other piece as a coach, as I'm sure you do, Jason, I can even sense that from our brief acquaintance here, is people knowing that the reason I'm sharing this is not to... You know, <laughs> show you my my smarts or make exactly. you feel when you're small. It's to actually build you up. Exactly, is to hold up that mirror. Is is your best interest at heart, and that's the advantage of not being from within the organization. Because the minute people start getting promoted, is the minute they stop being told the truth. Yeah, yeah. And now I'm not saying I have the truth. I have a version of the truth. Uh, but wouldn't you rather know it than not know it? Do you want to be the last person to find out? Yeah, yeah. I think that I think that's a there's a lot of wisdom there. And here's something that it seems to me that you have really nailed and mastered is you know who you are and you live your life as your authentic you. You, you know who you are again, playing to your strengths. And I think that that you know you, you mentioned. Um, Renee Brown, and I told you before you, when we first started, I think you're kind of like a mixture of all these amazing people all in one. Um, and she has said, one of the most courageous things you can ever be is just to truly be yourself. And I think so many people go through life in the witness protection program. They don't know who the heck they are. You know, they just, and they just, they just wander around and cause I don't want anybody knowing the real me. Right. And, and I've been guilty of it. I mean, I can play the part. It goes back to what I told you about being an, a, a, a recovering fixed mindset person. I'm a performer. You know, you see him on a ski slope. I'm going to look like I could crush those moguls and those doubled black diamonds, Like, but don't watch me because I really suck. But I'm looking, <laughs> I'm dressed right. Just make sure I look good. So this is coming from someone who understands that. How and when? I always wonder this, like, for example, I always wonder about guys like um, kind of your former boss's nemesis, uh, Steve Jobs. I always wonder which came first, the chicken or the egg. Was Steve Jobs so successful because he was always authentic and true to himself no matter what the consequences? Or did he get really successful 
And I know I've seen the movies and read the book by Isaacson and all that. So you get kind of an idea that he was kind of wacky early on and pretty sure of himself pretty early. But would, but did he know he was really successful and he had made it, and then he started really being Steve Jobs? How can people in a, not diplomatic, that's the wrong thing, but in a cautious way, I mean, you're, you're talking about somebody that's three years out of college being their authentic and true self. How do they navigate the waters of being honestly true to themselves as well as maintaining um, and keeping their job, you know, not, not going and just being, hey, I'm, look, I'm going to be true to me and you're going to deal with it. What's that balancing act? I mean, what are some things you do early on to, and to, and to also not lie to yourself, to get yourself out of that witness protection program or never go into it to begin with? I know I said a lot there, but Jason, this is this is gold. Uh, so, firstly, I'm I just in this moment, I I so appreciate your level of transparency and being willing to tell on yourself. It's powerful. <laughs> well, it's powerful to experience it in the moment, and I'm sure your listeners say that to you all the time. Well, I just want them to know who they're dealing with. You know, <laughs> I don't want <laughs> well, them to be surprised great. later. That's great, and I think the word authentic is problematic, actually. And um, if you really want to dig into that, read a book by Herminia Ibarra from INSEAD in uh, France. She okay. has brilliant things to say about authenticity, because if okay. we uh, blindly were authentic, then we would be our five-year-old uh, selves, mm. authentic to who we were born as and throwing tantrums on the floor. Yeah. So, so, so what does authenticity really mean? And also, by the way, don't use authenticity as a crutch against growing and changing and taking feedback. Yes. Yes. I love that. Right. There's a lot to that word. There's a lot packed up in that word that I could speak to you about for an entire hour. I won't bore you with that right now. But I think that the essence of your question, Jason, is how can I honor myself and survive in the conditions, in the environment that I'm in? Yeah. Uh, I believe that we are really shaped by the environments we find ourselves in. Okay. And so uh, absolutely read the tea leaves, read the weather veins, whatever you want to do uh, to understand what are the bounds? What are the bounds? What are the expectations? And then uh, first, I mean, in the extreme case, if that is really not you, leave. Mm. Back to that abundance mindset, you'll find something else. Yeah. And you'll find something that'll be more fulfilling and that will allow you to blossom and grow and and be more successful. But most of the time, it's not that dire and it's ways of of a constant calculation Mm -hmm. of. And so throw out little test balloons. And again, back to I'll start where we uh, I'll go back to where we started, which is don't do it alone. Find your allies, find your confidants, find people who will sponsor you who will back you up when you go out a little bit onto the, onto the ledge. Yeah. If this is what's circumscribed and you're going to peek your head just a little bit over and go over here and play here. And this person says, I got your back. Yeah. I'll boost you. I'll hold you. I'll say, yep, I was, I think that's not a bad idea to experiment. The experiment didn't work, but it wasn't that expensive a lesson. We learned something valuable there. I'm so glad Sabina did that. Mm. So find someone else who helps you with it and don't do it alone. I like that. Now, one of the things I want to just ask kind of what you're seeing out there because you are so, uh, you're so involved with so many different organizations. I mean, you mentioned it, you know, you're, you're coaching a university president. So much of the, the climate of human capital and just attitudes towards the workplace as, 
it's, it's so much different from whenever I had my first job. What, and I, I mentioned it before we got on that, you know, being a small business owner, my wife and I, a lot of times we find ourselves just almost in a, in a scarcity mindset. We're, we're, we're on eggshells to sometimes discipline employees or just offer even constructive criticism, you know, and, and to find that employee that doesn't crumble whenever you say, whenever you give them the least little bit of, hey, I'm not saying you're doing the wrong thing. I'm just saying there's a better way to do it. And I'm here to help you grow. Yeah. What are you seeing are some of the biggest challenges business leaders are having in navigating these waters that are somewhat different? Um, mm-hmm. How are, how are you coaching them to, to, to deal with, I mean, this, let's just on like kind of what you just said earlier, like these employees that they believe right, wrong, or indifferent, that whatever they bring to the company is paramount to anything that else that's going on, even if it means there are other workers in certain 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 circumstances. How are you helping the, these leaders deal with some of that? Or am I blowing it out of proportion? You're totally a spot on, Jason. Two words, pressure and purpose. Okay. Uh, it's recognizing that the kinds of pressures we are all under right now are tremendous and unprecedented. And it's not just one thing. It's it's like 15 different things that are that are exacerbating that pressure, it's all stacking up and it's been stacking up for th- over three years. Mm. And that's, that's in the best case scenario. You know, if we take the start of the pandemic as when it's sure. stacking. So, so how can we show up with empathy? How can we uh, change our expectations without lowering the bar? How can we, again, connect human to human and at least just say, I see you, mm. I witness you. I, I cannot imagine what it's like to be in your shoes and I imagine that it's, it's, it's tough given the competing pressures you're facing from X, Y, and Z. So it's, it's recognizing the pressures and what can I do to help there? Um, a great study that was done around employee motivation by Teresa Amabile and her colleagues in Harvard was that the single biggest thing a manager can do in terms of motivating an employee is removing bound, uh, barriers. And so when, especially in the face of all these pressures that we're facing, what is a barrier I can remove for you today? How can I ease your path forward? So that's one piece. And then the second piece, especially around giving someone corrective feedback is purpose. Mm -hmm. Contracting with your employee to say, what is your purpose here? By the time you leave here, what do you want on your resume? What, or what, what do you want as your next step here before you even leave here? and ground the feedback in their purpose. I like that. You you said you wanted to become a supervisor. Well, as a supervisor, you're gonna be under a microscope. Mm -hmm. And how you show up, how you walk in that door of the store is something the employees are gonna follow. That's beautiful. I love it. And it's also, it puts it, it kind of puts them under that, well, it, you're going to be watched more closely, or there's going to be more expected of you. But that's what you said you wanted, right? It kind of it kind of puts that's, them in that instead of it just yes, yes. And I'm on your team. You told me this was your purpose. I'm on your team helping you achieve that purpose. Yeah. Well, by the way, it also helps the business. But I'm doing it in service of your purpose. Yeah. Yeah. So now I'm much more willing to hear that. Do you ever have trouble getting your, you know? You know, asking for a friend. Do you ever have trouble getting your employers 
to do regular reviews and truly understand the importance of carving out that time to give what we're talking about, to understand what those employees' purpose is, and also to understand what their expectations are of you and you of them, to clear that space to actually... I find that's one of the biggest challenges because a lot, especially the more old school managers and supervisors, there's like, I don't need a review. Well, you're not the one getting the review, you know? No, it's your employees need it. Do you have trouble with that? And how do you get them to buy into that? Yes. Or I wasn't that needy when I started. Exactly. Exactly. What is this endless font of neediness? Well, you know, you're writing revisionist history, buddy. Um, Right. uh, let's actually talk about that. Let's really talk about that. Where, you know, when, when did you have a, a terrible boss, which of course everybody has tons of examples sure. of that. Oh, what happened there? Oh, so what was that? If that wasn't neediness, what was that? If that wasn't lack of feedback or getting surprised by negative feedback or whatever. So it's really taking them down memory lane, not in a revisionist way, but in a, in a more behavioral way to yeah. say, and here's what happened. So that's one piece is we forget because we are now much further along. Just like if you asked me whether if it was a struggle for me to learn the alphabet, I couldn't tell you yeah, because I'm way past that. Right. So there's that piece. The second piece is, yeah, you know what? Yep, you were special. You didn't go through any of this. <laughs> uh, you're right. You were wonderful. You, you're so far ahead of the class. You're the A++ student. And how's it working for you with this employee? <laughs> right. How's it working for you? Ultimately, it goes back to your purpose. Your purpose is for them to be as productive as possible with as much joy as possible so that it's not just, they're not just going through the mechanics of doing the job. They're, they're infusing it with love, with, the, with quality, with customer service. How's that working for you? Not so much. So you know what? You're right. Maybe you weren't that way and we don't need to even get into that argument. This is not one size fits all. Yes. This yes. is about looking at meeting each person where they are. Yeah. Yeah. And that's one of the things too, that I think that, you know, having two daughters that are millennials. So knowing their friends and kind of millennials are an easy target. But one of the things that I have understood about them is the fa- just if, if leveraged correctly, the fact that millennials want more purpose in their work and what they're doing. If you, if leverage correctly, it can be good, but you've got to be a boss. But we're, we're kind of in a crossover right now. Like when I went to work for Computer Sciences Corporation right out of school, I wasn't thinking about what's my greater purpose here. You know, I, I just, I wasn't, you know, what that was, I was like, I need a job. I'm going to have a family to support. I got it. And I want to climb the ladder and do as well as possible. But it's a different scenario now. So, and it, so in one way, now you can't obviously go too far whenever the purpose has nothing to do with the, the environment sure. or the company's mission and you're sure. just on your own crusade inside. You know, it's like yes. I'm – so, but I think that if leveraged correctly, that's one of the things I'm trying to help younger managers or, or excuse me, managers of younger employees understand. But And here's the thing that I've learned too. I don't know about you, but it kind of speaks their language. When they're just given – bonuses out willy-nilly at the end of the year when I tell them hey you could save a lot of money that's not you know Daniel Pink has shown that and every research has shown that that's not the carrot that they're after yeah it's just not and it's simplistic and it's unthoughtful and you may do more harm than good and it's going to cost you a lot of money so don't do that you know uh it's 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 been it's been really interesting um one of the things I want to ask you before you go because I'm always 
mean, look, I mean, you, you read this stuff, you study, not, I'm sure you study your clients to understand. I'm sure you probably picked up some of your best habits and tactics for your, for one engagement from a client that you have with another. What are some things that you do at, with all of your decades of experience dealing with high performing leaders and helping shape them and grow them? What are some things that besides being now being a regular runner that you are doing to continue to sharpen your blade, to continue to get that 1% better every day. What does your day look like? What are your reading habits? Kind of what are you doing, Sabina? Uh, I spend quite a bit of time uh, focusing on that because unless I am clean or clear, I cannot hold that space for someone else. And and a large part of this job is holding the space for them, not it being about me or not leaking onto them, uh, whatever's going on for me. So mm, hmm, habits. So I start my day uh, at the moment with my uh, thank you notes to myself. That yep. is that is the first thing I do uh, as, as soon as I'm able to in the morning. And then I go for a run. I run every single day w- uh, when I have access to a, a gym. Sometimes I cannot do that with travel. Okay. So this morning I did my thank you notes. I uh, went to the gym, ran four miles, and then uh, uh, went for a walk with a girlfriend. So for me as an extrovert, particularly, especially in this day and age, it's really important for me to connect with uh, friends, uh, with people. Mm, so we did that. And, and oh, I stacked on the dog walk with that. So that helped uh, take care of that errand. Um, made myself a snack. So I have, let me see if I can show it to you. In this uh, work from home era, ah. I keep this basket right next to me uh, under my feet. And in it are sna- healthy snacks okay. uh, and my vitamins and uh, so on. Uh, but mainly just nourishment. So making sure that I am nourished physically as well as emotionally, as well as mentally. Uh, And taking care of those areas is really, really important to me. Some other days, I might not be going for a walk with a girlfriend. I might take five minutes to do my Pilates homework. Uh, Abs are my nemesis. I hate working on my abs. (laughs) But now I have a Pilates teacher and I do my Pilates homework. Or uh, I might do a three-minute meditation. Mm where I'm just focused on my breath or yeah. something along those lines. I read voraciously somewhere between 50 to 100 books a year. At any given point, I'm reading three or four books at the same time. Depending on my mood that evening, I'll pick up a particular book. Uh, and I read fiction and nonfiction because I find that it feeds all sorts of parts of my brain and my imagination. And I use what I read with my uh, clients on a regular basis, Um, uh, uh, both uh, online articles like HBR length, as well as uh, uh, books and and the things that I extract out of books. In fact, sometimes I'll write down my own cliff notes and share that with my clients to help them. The the thing that's, that's hardest for me and requires, so these are all, things I've I've become habituated with, the thing that I still have to make really conscious effort on are my relationships, my closest relationships, because I'm in danger of taking them for granted. Mm. How do you do it? What do you do? 
How do you, how, cause um, I'm the same way. I, I mean, I'm, I'm the exact same way. What do you, what do you do to nurture those? Yeah. So there's two things. One is, uh, I'm quick to anger <laughs> and, and I get impatient with the people I'm closest with because they feel safest for me to course. express my impatience. And so I have to really slow down. And my younger son really helps me do this. He goes, yeah, I get that you were frustrated because I said that thing three times, or you had to remind me three times to empty the dishwasher. But did you really have to do it with that tone in your voice? Because that really hurt. And I went, ouch. <laughs> wow. Wow. Yeah. A 17 year old kid is telling me that. Yeah. And, you know, here I am constantly learning. Yeah. Okay, so now I need to slow that down. And I, I need to take a page from his book on how he expresses his frustration. So that's one. The other piece, which is a brilliant, brilliant tip that I just got from somebody who was helping me. Um, I was going through a stressful time. And, and she said, so, uh, you know, do you, do you have time blocked out for, um, for not work, not just doing, but to, to be? And I said, yeah. yes. And she said, how often do you give it away? And I said, oh, about half the time. And she said, well, what do you call that time on your calendar? And I said, time block. I just call it time block. Mm -hmm. And she said, why don't you write down exactly why you have blocked that time on your calendar? Genius. Genius, right? I love that. Because yes. now I'm like, oh, I said time with Matthew was important. Yes. And if I give away that time, I'm not giving away a generic time block. I'm giving away time, by, time with Matthew. Wait a minute. I don't want to do that. That's fantastic, Sabina. That is awesome. I mean, yeah. that could you imagine me you put your time with the children, time with why you know with Jimmel, and that's my wife's name. Yeah. Oh, that's good because it's one of the biggest things I I've struggled with. And one of the things that a lot of people is one, understanding the magnificent power and value and beauty of the word no, saying no. And and to me, and, and a lot of times it's it's hard for us to say no. We feel like we're supposed to say yes every time. But man, to have it named to that degree, so yeah, I'm I'm going to give this time away that I had appropriated for spending with my daughter when she comes in. Ooh, yeah, I like that. That's gold. Yes, yes. Gold. Okay, okay. Um, you made me think of one other thing I wanted to ask. Oh, reading. I'm a voracious reader as well. And by the way, when for the listener out there who, and people that listen to the show, they know I talk about reading all the time. It's push-ups for your brain. It's just the best thing in the world. And I love using words like use nourishment for emotions, your mind. You know, it's kind of like hygiene. We, we use these, we, we forget that things like our brains need nourishing, our emotions. We need to nourish them. So I love yeah. that you use that word for that. Uh, and books... I look a lot of times, I tell my wife this all the time. People think I'm so smart. Not everybody. Some, some people listen to this going, no, Jason, not, you don't have me fooled. But a lot of them think I'm kind of smart. And I go, no, I'm really not. I just read a lot of books. It's amazing. For, for the, you know, Seth Godin once said that books are one of the most amazing technologies ever in that you can take someone's life's work and you can have it for less than five bucks sometimes at half price books. It's amazing. But if you're going to talk books, I got to ask you, if you were going to gift me, I mean, we, we kind of know each other now, you know, you're my bud now. So if you were going to get me something for Christmas, you're going to buy me a book and just think of like, you don't have to give me three books, but one of three or four fiction or nonfiction that you might gift me or somebody that you know better than me. I have to stick with just a small handful. I could go on forever, Jason. Just, just um, you, I'll, as many. Just I'll take as many as you'll give me. <laughs> <laughs> my most recent from the most recent list, I would say 
uh, The Book of Form and Emptiness by Ruth Ozeki. Okay. It's a it's a book of uh, fiction. It's one of the best books of fiction I have read. Okay. And I've managed to convince my book club to read it this month. So we'll see what they think of it. Uh, so that that would be one. Okay. And uh, 4,000 Weeks Time Management for Mortals. Mm, I think the author is Oliver Berkman, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, it's not your time management hack book. It, it's a book. I see books as um, I enjoy reading them. I uh, where like they're page turners, fiction or nonfiction, that they somehow change me in some way. Yeah. And same, not, same. And it's got to have utility I, value. Yes. And, and I can remember them afterwards because there are some books that I've enjoyed in the moment. But if you ask me two years later, I couldn't tell you what they were about. Same. So uh, this time management for mortals has actually changed me and okay. how I uh, look at time. Okay. Um, currently, I'm reading and really enjoying uh, a, a book called Staring at the Sun by Irvin Yalom. That one and I've heard of, but I haven't read yet. Yes, it's Overcoming Our Terror of Death. So it's yeah. kind of ironic for me to say I'm enjoying reading it, but it is a topic that uh, is inevitable for yeah. all of us and that we spend a lot of time, uh, most of our lifetimes, denying or uh, avoiding. Yep. And uh, and I've just really appreciated how he's tackling it. Okay. Um, so those are those are three that immediately come to mind there are so many others, though, and I'm working on my own book, and I hope to come back on your show in a couple of years when that process is done. Please, absolutely. I can't wait, and I better, I better get a copy. And, I, and so here's another thing, too, that you're talking about reading fiction versus nonfiction. So for the longest, I was that typical person that was like, yeah, I don't read much fiction because, you know, I mean, i got to be learning something, blah, 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 blah. But you know what? <laughs> As someone who, like you, when we present, we tell stories, some of the most amazing stories and analogies come out of fiction. They're, yes. they're, they're gold mines. So, so for those people out there, you can learn about life because all fiction is it's somebody's perception somewhere of a life lived or, or how they imagine life. So I've tried to incorporate more fiction into my reading as well. It's money. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. The research also shows that we become more empathetic and it taps into our own imaginations when we read fiction. So Yeah, I just heard that. That was wild. Somebody was talking about, I can't remember who said that, that you that yes, reading fiction makes you more empathetic because you have to put yourself in the character. You have to live the characters. Instead of just leading, reading about how someone else felt, you have to, if for it to be good, you have to put yourself in that character's shoes and, and you have to gen, you know conjure up the feelings yourself. So good advice. Sabina, this has been so much fun. Likewise, Jason, I could, I could, I feel like I could chat with you forever. So, well, you have got a, a welcome invitation anytime you want to come on. I, I always tell my guests that you know I'm just not a transactional guy; I'm much more relational. I like to. I, I'm the luckiest guy in the world that I get to do this. That people like you will say yes to come on here and talk to me and. And the, to the listener, congratulations on yet another awesome episode of the Jason Wright Show, not because of the host, but because a, uh, a very kind guest was willing to exchange their most valuable non-renewable resource with us, which is their time. So thank you, Sabina. Thank you so much, Jason. Thank you for your connection. Thank you for your warmth. Thank you for drawing out these stories. I had no idea what I was going to say. And uh, <laughs> you really tapped into things that, that are important to me. Well, and good. hopefully important to your listeners, more well, importantly. I hope so. Now, where can people find you and keep in touch with what you're up to? 
Yeah, the best way is to join my mailing list. They could go to my website, sabinanawaz.com, or email info at sabinanawaz.com. Uh, if they mention your show, I'll send them a one-page resource guide on what successful people do awesome. in their lives and, uh, and then add them to the list. Fantastic. Sabina, thank you so much for being on the Jason Wright Show. Sit tight. I'll say goodbye after I hit in right here. Well, that does it for this episode of the Jason Wright Show. Thank you so much for listening. This has been a Texas Titan Media production. Fourth Wall did the music. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Please consider going out to jasonwrightnow.com and signing up for the Vitruvian Letter. Also, please go out to iTunes. It takes like 30 seconds to just leave us a five-star rating. It does wonders for the podcast. I would be so grateful. And with that, until we meet again, go crush it and endeavor to improve always in all ways. I'm out. Thank you.